Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we glorify you this day. We recognize that you are the Lord of history. That, God, you have created the world and all that is in it for your own purpose, for your own plan, and for the glory of your name. And, God, we recognize that you are sovereign over what happens in your world. And that, Lord, you are bringing your world to an expected end, the end for which you created the world. And that, God, by your providence, that you are working everything according to the counsel of your own will. We thank you. We recognize, O oh Lord, that your hand is upon history and that the world is yours. And we pray, O oh God, that you would give us strength to stand in our faith, O Lord, till the end of our days to trust you and to love you with all that is within us. We thank you for the glorious things that you have done in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his glorious gospel which has saved us. And we thank you for all that you're doing now in our lives to make us holy and to fashion us so that we are like Jesus. We thank you for that good process in our life. We honor you. We thank you for this uh, privilege that we have today to look into your word and to freely proclaim your word here. I pray that our hearts and minds would be ready to receive the truth. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I was going to say another word about this. Um, okay, yes. Uh, on, the, on the first side of this little map, is, it says premillennialism. Okay, and I want to ask the whole class a question. Forgive me, I got to sit on this stool because my back is hurting. So, um, <clears throat> how many of you have actually sat in church sermons or Bible classes where you've been taught a certain view about the millennium? Would you please raise your hand? Okay, that looks like about 80, per, 80 or more percent of the church has received some kind of teaching about the millennium. That's good. Um, so I'm not going to be covering this stuff much at all. That is distinctions between millennial positions, okay? There are three positions that are held concerning the millennium. That is premillennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism, okay? These three things mean something very simple, okay? Amillennial means there is no millennium, okay? Thus, ah, millennialism, okay? No millennium. Post-millennialism is Christ returns after the millennium, okay? Christ returns after the millennium so that the millennium will happen and then that will usher in the return of Christ who will come after the millennium is finished. That's the position we call post-millennialism, okay? Uh, it's also related to a doctrine called reconstructionism, okay? You may be familiar with that. It has a lot to do with uh, the doctrine of the church and the, and the understanding of uh, salvation in the gospel, okay? But then also is a position called premillennialism, Okay? All the elders at Heritage Christian Fellowship are premillennialists. We all conform to the basic tenets of premillennialism. 
this means that Christ returns before the millennium and he actually establishes the millennial kingdom where he reigns on the earth for a thousand years. That's why when you look at the little chart here, you see that the cross happened here, then you have the church age, and then just toward the end of the church age, you have the 70th week of Daniel, and there, right after that, you have a thousand-year millennium, okay? The word millennium means a thousand-year period, okay? That comes from the scripture text of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And it comes from a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of that passage. Okay? So that's all I'm going to say, probably, (laughs) about millennialism. Okay? So you need to be able to distinguish in your mind when we say premillennialism what we mean. And you also need to understand that that is something very different from pre-tribulationalism. Okay? Pre-tribulationalism is a position that some uh, premillennialists hold, okay? But it's not the same thing. Pre-tribulationalism has to do with the timing of the rapture uh, concerning the second coming of Christ versus premillennialism, which has to do with a very broad and general category saying that Christ will come before the millennium. Everybody with me? Okay, was that, is anybody confused by that? I'll, I'll say that again. Okay, great, praise the Lord. Amillennialism, there is no millennium. That comes from an allegorical interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Okay, and there are many, many very good men and very good Bible scholars who hold an amillennial position. Many who we respect very much. And so you need to understand that even on the arguments of premillennialism and amillennialism, this is not an essential doctrine that we uh, divide with other Christians over. Okay, it's one that we debate vigorously, okay, but it is not an essential doctrine. It's not something that separates the love and unity that we have in Christ. You with me? Everybody with me? Okay, all right. And we're going to talk some at length about that. All right, so another couple things I want to tell you as we get going here. There's a book back there called The Blessed Hope. If, if um, I wanted to say this, if the only teaching or understanding that you have about end times events or last days or eschatology is the left behind book or the left behind movie or the left-behind series of novels or something like that, if that's the only teaching you've been exposed to, then you really need to read this book because what's going to happen is I'm going to get into a bunch of things right in the text of 1 Thessalonians that are going to cause you a lot of surprise. And uh, you may even be utterly shocked by the things you find here in 1 Thessalonians. Okay, so this will give you a preparation to understanding what I'm going to be dealing with in this text, okay? And so um, I'm I'm simply uh, suggesting that you read this for the benefit of understanding where in the world I'm coming from and what in the world I am saying in regard to this text in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, okay? All right. I'm sorry, I don't know. There's a paper back there that says what the suggested donation for the book is. If you take a book, it's $13.
If you take a book, please do donate for it, okay? All right. Or maybe you want to donate for other people as well. That's a good thing too. Okay, one other thing. This is a Power Bible CD, okay? These cost $7. You can get them at powerbible.com. I suggest that if you're going to be interested in all this eschatology and you don't have some Bible software and you do have a computer, you need to get one of these, okay? Now, if you don't get one of these, go to eSword Bible, okay? eSword Bible. You can just go to Google and type in eSword Bible, okay? And you'll find the eSword, which is very similar to this, and you can download it for free and have it on your computer. One of the great benefits of having Bible software when it comes to studying something complex like eschatology is it has an online concordance in every translation that's in the software. So if you're, let's say you're studying the NASB, you can go in the NASB, you can type in the word tribulation, and it'll bring up all the references in the whole Bible where the word tribulation is used. Okay? That is a tremendous benefit when you want to start focusing in on some of these eschatological topics. Okay? So I would suggest that you get one of these if you don't have one. Or, and there's a lot better ones that you can spend more money on and you'll be in better shape. Yeah, Charles. Power Bible. Power Bible. www.powerbible.com. Okay? All right. Okay, then. So I'm going to pick up uh, on page two of our notes down where it says purpose and themes present in 1st Thessalonians. Now, I'm going to just give you a brief review of some things that we covered last week because I want you to see this in context again. The Bible has a lot to say about the background of the Thessalonian church. And the Thessalonian church is a very interesting church. They were a church that was planted on Paul's second missionary journey where Paul spent a very short period of time in Thessalonica preaching the gospel and making disciples. And within just about a month's time, Paul had to leave that city. And so he only uh, preached the gospel and made disciples for about a month's time. What he left behind was the Thessalonian church. Well, what they went on to find out was just a few months later, when Paul sent Timothy back to get a report from Thessalonica to find out what had happened, They had received the word of God with power in one month's time so that they became a model church. And Paul writes commending them. I'm broken by this because I see what riches we have in America and how we treat it so lightly and how we treat it so superficially. We are literally dumbed down by the affluence of our culture. And um, I'll tell you, these people lived in a center of vice and crime and wickedness and pagan idolatry. And when they turned to Christ, they were saved miraculously. And they became a sounding trumpet for the gospel in their place, just as baby Christians. I mean, this church is a remarkable story. Okay, so with that, what happens is Paul and his homeboys are traveling along 
And uh, they come through, it says in Acts 17, they came through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, and there they met for three weeks in the synagogues, okay? In the synagogue. There was a very large and influential synagogue in Thessalonica. Paul was there preaching that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, now remember, at this time, they did not have a New Testament. And here's Paul preaching to the Gentiles and to the Jews in this Greek region. And uh, there he meets with him for three weeks in the synagogue. And what happens is, uh, just after a short period of time there for three weeks, the Jews get very angry and they run Paul out of town. And so Paul leaves Thessalonica and he travels about 50 miles over to Berea. And there he goes into the synagogue in Berea. Except in Berea... They Jews there are of a very different nature. They receive Paul very warmly. And they start studying the scriptures to see that what Paul is saying is right. And the scripture calls them the more noble Bereans because they went and they studied their Bible to see if what Paul was saying was true. They wanted to know, they knew the Bible was the word of God. And that if that's what was really being said in the Bible, then they needed to believe it. And so they, uh, they warmly received Paul. Well, what happens is the angry Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul went to Berea, and so they came from Thessalonica to Berea and stirred up a bunch of trouble there and ran Paul out of Berea, okay? So Paul left uh, Berea, and he went down to Athens. And when he went down to Athens, he left Timothy and Silas in Berea. Uh, Silas took off and went to Philippi, and uh, um, Timothy went back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. This is all in the course of a few months, okay? So then, <clears throat> when Timothy gets back, what Timothy did was he went from Berea back to Thessalonica, and he found that the church had been thriving. And uh, so he comes down to Athens to meet Paul, as does Silas. And when Timothy gets there, he, he hears this, uh, Paul hears this report from Timothy that the church had been thriving. And um, uh, this is what caused Paul to write the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. Okay? So when Paul got this report that the Thessalonian church was thriving, he then penned First Thessalonians and sent it by runner to them. And so what happened was, <clears throat> at that point, um, Paul apparently got a message back from Thessalonica after they received his first letter. This caused Paul to pen his second letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, scholars believe that the letters of First and Second Thessalonians were written just within a couple of months of each other. Okay. You understand, it takes several days' journey just to bring a letter, okay? Much less hear reports and those kinds of things. So, uh, but you need to understand that not a lot of time passed between the writing of 1 Thessalonians and the writing of 2 Thessalonians. These happened both within a very close period of time, and furthermore, Paul in those letters is dealing with a very similar set of subjects. In other words, it's obvious by the content of the two letters that, that there wasn't much transaction of time between the two because Paul is readdressing some of the same concerns he addressed 
on the first time around. It kind of went like this. He sends the first letter up there. They get the letter. They have some questions. When the runner gets back, he says, hey, Paul, you know all that stuff you said about, uh, you know, the rapture and, and the second coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. Well, what about this, this, and this? We don't seem to understand. In fact, we're a little confused about this. What about all this tremendous persecution we're under? It's, you know, what is the deal here? Is this the day of the Lord? These are terrible times. We're suffering here. What's up, Paul? So this is the report he gets back after the letter of First Thessalonians, which is what causes him to write Second Thessalonians. And right off the bat, man, chapter 1, he's dealing with eschatology. And he's dealing with the, the second coming of Christ, the great tribulation period, the revelation of the Antichrist, and the destruction of the Antichrist. And he's also promising the Thessalonians that when Jesus comes, he's going to deliver all of God's people from persecution and from suffering. And so that is the content of the letter of Second Thessalonians, along with a couple of other doctrinal problems they were having concerning uh, practical instructions for godly living, in which Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 deals with church discipline. And it deals with a specific practical issue where you got people in Thessalonica who think they ought to be able to bum off of other Christians and eat everybody else's food and not have to go to work. So Paul, that's where Paul says, hey, look, if you won't work, you won't eat. Okay? And not only that, he encourages the church then to do something about it. And so that's where we get instructions for church discipline. Okay, that's review. So let's pick up on page two, and let's talk about what is it the things that Paul is saying in these letters? What are the present themes? Well, I broke them down into four. The first one is joy, thanksgiving, and encouragement for a healthy new church. The second is responsibilities of a healthy church. The third is instructions for godly living. And the fourth is eschatological topics of grave importance. These are the main themes that exist of content that's in both letters, First and Second Thessalonians. So let's talk for a minute about joy, thanksgiving, and encouragement for a healthy new church. Paul spends the entire first chapter of the letter of First Thessalonians thanking God and commending the Thessalonians for their great faith. For example, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Here is this great commendation that Paul gives to this church, and he's thanking God for them. He says, We give God thanks always for all of you. He was sure they were God's very elect and chosen people because of the fruits of their lives. You know, here he pulls into town. He's there for one month. He leaves. He goes away. Three months later, he sends to find out what happened. And they have become this exploding church that is missions involved in sending out and preaching the gospel. And, and under tremendous persecution and hostile uh, uh, persecution environment, this little fledgling church is jamming. They are really doing well. And, and so Paul is so excited. And so he writes back in the whole first chapter, he's just commending them. And this is one of the things he says, knowing, dear brethren, God's choice of you. 
He says, I know you were chosen by God. How do I know that? I look at your life and I see amazing fruit in, in a set of amazing circumstances. You see that? That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul's saying, I know you people are elect. You people are chosen of God. How come I know that? Because of the way you received the gospel message. Because it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction, you received the word of God, he says. In chapter 2, verses 13, he says this about the Thessalonians. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul says, I know you were elect. You know why? Because of the way you received the word of God. It came to you in power. It came to you in, in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. You were convicted by your sins. You repented of your sins and you turned to God. This, Paul says, shows that you were chosen of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, he says this about the Thessalonians. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Paul commending them, and saying, because of your great faith, it's obvious that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And in both letters, he mentions their elect status. Isn't that interesting? Well, you, when you think about the circumstances of the, of the planting of the Thessalonians church, it's very obvious, is it not? Here he calls these idol-worshiping Gentiles, right? And a few Jews, right, from a hostile synagogue... <laughs> And, and, and he, God literally plucks these people out of this dark culture. And he sanctifies them and cleanses them and washes them and fills them with the new life of the gospel. Amen? It's glorious. Paul even goes so far to say in his thanksgiving and joy and commendation of this church that they are his very glory and joy, the fruits of his own labor in the Lord. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he writes this, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And Paul is saying, man, whew. he says, I'm an apostle on cloud nine here. I can't believe what happened in the Thessalonian church. He's just struck. He's struck. And he is excited. Let me tell you, is he excited? And so, if you will... He writes this entire first chapter as a commendation. And uh, quite frankly, there really is not much correction at all in both of these letters. Paul is just trying to encourage them, to exhort them, and, uh, uh, but, but he, he doesn't ever go into some lengthy discourse about where they missed it and what they're doing wrong, like he does at times. And you might be familiar that this was characteristic even of our Lord. 
uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you find the letters to the seven churches. And uh, uh, to, to uh, at least four of those churches is a stinging reproof from our Lord to those churches and the state that they're actually in. You with me? And uh, uh, so, uh, as was Paul's custom also to correct the church, for example, the book of 1 Corinthians is, is basically uh, 14 chapters of correction <laughs> and two chapters of, uh, of uh, encouragement and exhortation, right? And, uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, this Thessalonian church doesn't get any of that. What they get instead is joy, thanksgiving, commendation, and then practical instruction. You know, and uh, Paul, I think Paul really wants to just reaffirm things that he felt like really needed to be reaffirmed as he writes to them. And, and in so doing, then he brings this wonderful, uh, practical uh, instruction to a healthy church. What should a healthy church do? What should they look like? What should they focus on? What should be the things that they need to consider? That's what you find in Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church. And so <clears throat> with that. The Thessalonian church was indeed a model church of faith and hope and love and holy lives who were both evangelical and steadfast even in the face of persecution. Okay? So then, another theme here present in these letters are the responsibilities of a healthy church. Okay? So what you find is instructions for what a whole church ought to be like. What Christian lives ought to be like in light of the corporate fellowship, okay? If you will, there is quite a bit of ecclesiology in these letters. Paul is talking to us about the nature of the church. MacArthur writes this in a brief statement about the responsibilities that Paul writes of in the Thessalonian letters. He says, The Thessalonian epistles catalog the marks of a healthy, growing church. They give the responsibilities of the leaders to the congregation... And, of course, each one of these has scripture references there. The congregation to the leaders of believers to grow spiritually, to stand firm in the midst of persecution, and and live orderly lives, and the church's responsibility to discipline sinning members. They also emphasize the church's responsibility to reach the lost world with the saving truth of the gospel. This letter give such clear and concise instructions on church life, its message can hardly be mistaken. As we will see, the, the instructions here are very clear and they're very practical. And so, if you will, Paul has many different places in both letters where he's giving instructions for godly living. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, Paul gives very practical instructions about godly living even as he is commending the Thessalonians as already doing so. For example, in uh, verses 1 and 2, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still the more. See what Paul's saying? He's saying, you know, we told you how to live a godly life, And I recognize you're doing that already. You see, that's a commendation from Paul. Yet he says, still, I want you to excel all the more. Verse 2, he says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, when Paul planted this church, he gave them commandments. 
He commanded them how they ought to live. And that was the apostolic way. These are God's commandments. They're to be fully obeyed. Amen? These aren't seven healthy, happy suggestions for a better life. Amen? These are commandments from the living God. And that's what the gospel is. Amen? So, if you will, he commands them to avoid sexual immorality, which was so prevalent in their culture. A little later on, I'm going to talk to you some about what uh, uh, the, the, uh, the sexual climate of the pagan Greece at this time was something that is really quite horrific. And uh, uh, there's quite a bit of information on that, that that we have, but I'm going to explain to you what that was like. So it's no small thing to these Thessalonian Christians when Paul commands them uh, to avoid sexual immorality because it was very, very prevalent in their culture. I mean, it was just commonplace. I mean, if you think America is, is, uh, is uh, uh, rudely overcome with these things, let me tell you. Let me tell you, this is like a, a, a walk in the park compared to what it was like in, in uh, Greece in this time. And I'll, I'll spend some time explaining that to you. But for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, Paul writes this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Well, he also commends them and exhorts them to love and to be growing in love and also to work hard, to lead quiet lives and to not be in any need. This is a theme in Paul's writing in both letters. That is to work hard and to not be in any need. He's commanding them not to be in any need. How do they do that? By working hard with their own hands. Amen. And, uh, of course, that's a theme in Paul's teaching in many epistles. But, for example, in chapter 1, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he writes this, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For, indeed, you practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. (coughs) Excuse me. There you can see how clearly Paul gives instructions and how concise his instructions are. (coughs) In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Verses 12 through 21 is some of the most concise instructions on godly living in all of Paul's letters. And then again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, Paul writes explaining the process of church discipline and commanding them to carry it out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. You hear what Paul's saying to the church? He's commanding the church to keep aloof from Christians who lead an unruly life. You see that? If you will, there's quite a discourse there 
in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 about church discipline, and we're going to get to dive into that and see what Paul has to say. Well, then that brings us to this uh, other theme that is very prevalent in these letters, and that is eschatological topics of grave importance. Of all of the Pauline writings, First and Second Thessalonians deal most profoundly with eschatology. By eschatology, we mean the study of last things or of the end times, if you will. In fact, issues that Paul deals with here have absolutely massive implications for the whole world of mankind, whereas Paul actually speaks in great detail about the end of the world as we know it, the eagerly expected second coming of Christ himself to deliver his people and to bring judgment on a world full of rebellious sinners. So I want you to consider of the things that are written in these two letters from the Apostle Paul that there aren't any kinds of writings like this in the world anywhere. They only come from the Bible. Not only that, they come as authoritative prophetic literature that is written as the very word of God. It's in this very letter where Paul says, when we brought you the word of God, you didn't receive it as the word of men, right? But what it really is, the word of God. Then Paul's going to go on and he's going to talk to us about how the world ends. He's going to talk to us about Jesus appearing in the sky in flaming fire with his mighty angels to deal out retribution to a world of unbelieving sinners. Where do you find anything like that in the writings of other world religions? And where is it that you have a monotheistic God, one God who is coming in judgment to judge the the world? Okay, and, and these things are very crystal clear. Paul is not making any bones about it. Not only that, this literature is not apocalyptic in the sense that it's, it's, it's filled with mystery. It's not like, if, for instance, these, these uh, pictures in, in Revelation that you see that don't even fit into a linear chronology. And there's this tremendous apocalyptic language that's very symbolic and hard to understand. That's not the nature of Pauline eschatology. Paul is telling us exactly the way it's going to happen, and he's explaining the way prophecy is. He's not giving us a new revelation that, that comes to us in the form of apocalyptic language. Instead, he's explaining the other passages in Scripture that are apocalyptic and mysterious and mystical, if you will, in a sense. He's explaining those things in, in clear language where we can understand what they mean and how they apply to our life. That's the very interesting thing about these letters. It's very much like Jesus writing in the Olivet Discourse. It's not Jesus writing, but it's his, his teaching about eschatology in the Olivet Discourse. He is not like Daniel the prophet or Isaiah the prophet or John the revelator writing in this very apocalyptic and symbolic language. Jesus is getting right down to brass tacks and telling us how it's going to apply to our life. And Paul is doing the same thing, even expounding on some things that the Lord said himself. And so uh, Paul's writing on eschatology is something that's very, very clear and not hard to understand at all. And so if you can kind of get a handle on the general, on the big picture, on the categories that Paul is laying out here, and I'm going to show you how closely these parallel with our Lord's teaching in the Olivet Discourse. If you can get a handle on this very clear revelation from the Bible about eschatology, all the apocalyptic stuff, okay, 
will begin to find places in the puzzle where it fits. Okay? So what I'm suggesting is let's learn from the Bible the very clear, recognizable things about eschatology that are real clear. And let's take the apocalyptic, mystical, mystery type things that are in prophecy and let the clear things be the infrastructure that guides us to understanding how they all fit together. Okay? You'll see as time goes on uh, where I'm going with all of that. However, what Paul's saying in First and Second Thessalonians, let me tell you, it's really clear. And this is an amazing thing, uh, set of things that Paul has written. The things which are here spoken of are some of the most profoundly important writings in all of the Word of God. These, these, truly, these warnings from God prove the very divine character of the Bible. What I'm saying is, the things that are spoken here could only be spoken of by God. God is the only one who could come up with this message and say it to us in the way it has been said. Pinpoint and describe the exact way that it's going to unfold in history and then cause that message to be consistent throughout the entire Bible in all of its types and shadows so that all of the prophetic literature and all of the types and shadows in the Old Testament going all the way back into the Garden of Eden all point to this outline, this structure of eschatology that's explained in the New Testament. Only God could do this. I'm saying that when you begin to understand the message that's being given in these letters, okay, you understand this is the word of God by the very nature of the things that are being said to us. They're very profound. And, uh, and let me tell you, they are serious. They are more serious than anything you have ever considered in all of your life. And uh, the more I read them, I tell you, it strikes fear in my soul. Not for me, because I'm, I am in the covenant. I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and my sins are forgiven. I'm expectantly and eagerly looking forward to the return of Christ. Because when he comes here, him and I are going to embrace. Are you with me? You understand? And I'm going to be ushered into glory. Not because I'm good but because he is righteous altogether and has imputed his righteousness to me and forgiven all of my sins and given me new life in Christ. I've already been born again. I have passed from death unto life. I'm going to live forever. I'm just waiting for the king to come and destroy evil, which I hate. Are you with me? And that's what I'm eagerly looking forward to. And this is how you can tell a real believer from an unbeliever. A real believer is longing for fellowship with Jesus and longing for Jesus to come and correct the evils of the world. Are you with me? It's of these things that Paul writes with very clear and concise teaching. It's very profound. Okay, so what book in all of human history has spoken with such majesty and authoritative imperative as the Bible when it speaks to us about the end of the world at the powerful hand of God and of the coming judgment of mankind. Here in Thessalonians, we get a sneak peek at those most important and crucial issues of Bible prophecy. And it comes to us in the form of instruction and practical explanation for us to understand very clearly and concisely. So I've kind of broken the Paul's eschatology down into uh, basically three categories. The first is deliverance of God's people at the first resurrection. 
Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, is the famous passage on the rapture of the church, which even deals with the death of Christians and their future hope. Here is a picture of one very important event called the first resurrection. Okay? Now I want you to remember that term, first resurrection. Why? Because there's more than one. Okay? And if you read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, you read about the first resurrection there and in other places, but then you find the second resurrection there listed in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Okay? So you have two resurrections. I want you to remember that, okay? We're going to talk about that when we get to that text of Scripture. Um, but <clears throat> we also learn in First Thessalonians that we, that is the church, that is Christians, that is people who've been born again by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. want to make sure we get that straight, right? Not just people who say they're Christians, but people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Those are Christians. Okay, regardless of what they say. Okay, those people (laughs) are not destined for God's wrath like the wicked, but more than twice are given promises of deliverance from God's wrath. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, where it says that, uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So what does Jesus do? He delivers us from the wrath to come. We will be delivered from the wrath. That's what Paul says here. And then also again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, God didn't save you so he could destroy you. Amen? God saved you from destruction so that he could bless you and give you life eternal in heaven with joy and thanksgiving for all the eons of eternity world without end amen that's why god saved us he didn't save us to destroy us okay he saved us from destruction he saved us from his own wrath it's a very profound thing to consider amen So we have these promises of deliverance from God's wrath. The church is not destined for the wrath of God. Amen? And you see how clear that is in Paul's writing? He's not beating around the bush. He's not giving you some uh, allegorical or apocalyptic vision of of, uh, metaphorical things that uh, are hard to understand. You with me? This is what he says. You're not destined unto wrath. Okay? Then also he talks quite a bit about the second coming of Christ. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, there is a reference to the second coming in every chapter. Did you know that? In the book of 1 Thessalonians, there is a reference to the second coming in every chapter. And I listed them all out for you there. In 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, this coming is referred to as the day of the Lord. Okay? In both letters... The second coming of Christ is referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the term day of the Lord, that's a very important term in prophetic literature, okay? Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Old Testament has extensive things to say about the day of the Lord. And if you will, 
Paul calls the second coming of Christ the day of the Lord in both letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-10, through 10, we have not only a reference to the second coming, but also the destruction of the ungodly and judgment of those who have rejected the gospel. Consider these profoundly serious words in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verses 7 and following, where he says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Now, family, those are some of the most shocking words in all of the Bible. Do you understand what is being said there? Think about it. I want you to give some serious thought and meditation to this passage of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians. We'll spend some time there. But the reason for that is you need to understand this battle that we fight to get the gospel out to a culture is a serious, serious battle. We're talking about the the eternal destiny of people's souls hanging in the balance. Okay? What am I saying? That their salvation rests on your obedience? No, I'm not saying that. Their salvation rests in the sovereignty of God. However, Christians are the mouthpiece of God on the earth when it comes to the gospel. Okay? We are given the task to evangelize the world around us and to make disciples of everyone around us. That's our task. That's our great priority. That's the work of faith that he's commending the Thessalonians for. And you know what? didn't take them one month of, of, of uh, discipleship to figure out that that was their job and they went out and did it. Are you with me? Paul commends them for it in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 8 through 10. That they became a sending church. They went out and preached the gospel and made disciples and people got saved all over Macedonia because of what this little fledgling church was doing. And here we are, you know, in this culture where, you know, I've got like 19 Bibles in my house. I've got bookshelves full of theology, you know. Man, I'm a walking, breathing Bible. And I'm asking myself, what am I doing? To preach the gospel and see people get saved. I'm asking myself, how many disciples am I making? Because I take this stuff very seriously. You understand why, right? I read passages like this. I say, you know what? The Lord is serious about this stuff. Right? The night is coming when no man can work. I've got a little bit of time. If I'm lucky, if my back holds out, (laughs) maybe they'll put me in a wheelchair. And I'll preach the gospel there. They're going to have to cut my tongue out. Okay? But I'm going to do what the Lord commanded me. Because I know I've experienced the grace of God. It's the most glorious thing in the world. I want to tell every single person I meet what Christ has done for me. Amen? And I want to warn them, you need to flee from the coming wrath. It's a terrible time. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. God is furious. Okay. Not only is he furious, he's going to do something about it. 
He is going to punish every single sin that has ever been committed in the history of mankind. From the first man on the earth until the last man on the earth. He's going to punish every single sin. Because he has to. He's just. He's holy. He's good. That's what a good judge does. He brings evil to consequence. Okay? So what are you going to do? Well, either you're going to die for your sins or Jesus is going to die for your sins. And God is freely offering to have your payment for sins paid by Jesus. That's the gospel message, family. It deals with the sin problem once and for all. Amen? And it averts God's wrath from us personally. Right? And in place of it, gives us God's blessing forever. Amen? Now, with a message like that, what are we doing watching TV? Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? I, I don't mean that, you know, hey, I watch TV. I'm going to go home and watch the Saints beat the Eagles today. <laughs> <clears throat> but my point is, let us not sit entranced by that tube six nights a week while people are dying in their sin. Let's get busy preaching the gospel and making disciples. Amen? You with me? Okay. Sorry, I'll get off my uh, high horse here. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay, then. So then later in chapter 2, verse 8, we have a reference to the Lord Jesus himself personally destroying the Antichrist at his coming. So we know that there is an Antichrist. We know that what he's going to do is a terrible, wicked thing. And we know that Jesus is going to destroy him when he comes. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 8. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Okay? <clears throat> then also, there is an explanation in the Thessalonian letters. There is an explanation of the coming day of wrath and judgment including instructions about the Antichrist and Great Tribulation. Both in First and Second Thessalonians deal with God's judgment and destruction of the wicked and rebellious world. Paul explains in First Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will come like a thief to the unbelieving world. And when it comes, it will bring sudden destruction down upon them who believe themselves to be safe from harm. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying peace and safety. Then, sudden, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. However, Paul instructs the Christians that this day will not overtake them like a thief, because they walk in the light of day, enlightened by the knowledge of the signs of his coming. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, verses 4 and 5, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. Amen? After these passages in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, quoted above, where Paul describes the destruction of the gospel-rejecting sinners, he then goes into a lengthy discourse on the revelation of the Antichrist 
and the great tribulation period in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Although Paul does not expressly call this the great tribulation, as Jesus does in Matthew 24, 15 through 21, and in Mark 13, verses 14 through 20, we know clearly from other texts in Scripture that the events of the Antichrist's rise to power and reign of terror are the very events that make up the great tribulation period, which are included in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, that was a long sentence. Um, I want to say this one more time. I don't want you to be confused about this. I'm telling you that 2 Thessalonians talks to us about the Great Tribulation. All right? Now listen. Although Paul does not expressly call this the Great Tribulation, as Jesus does in the Olivet Discourse, we know clearly from other texts in Scripture that the events of the Antichrist's rise to power and reign of terror are the very events that make up the Great Tribulation period, which are included in the 70th week of Daniel. You with me? What I'm saying is Paul doesn't say this is the Great Tribulation. What he says instead is this is the re- revealing of the Antichrist, the Uh, awful, wicked thing that the Antichrist does, which is referred to as the abomination of desolation, okay? And then uh, furthermore, it talks about the nature of his deceptive power during this time, and then right at the end of that, his destruction by the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So it talks all about what the Antichrist does. Well, if you know about who Antichrist is in the Scripture, you know very clearly that what he's doing happens in the middle of the Great Tribulation. How do we know that? Well, that's exactly what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Okay, not only that, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter uh, 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 11 and 12, and Revelation chapter 13 make those things very, very clear to see. Okay, even though that's apocalyptic language, when you begin to understand that we're talking about the Antichrist now, you know that we're focused in on this one short little period of time when he is revealed and does his wicked thing, okay? And uh, we're going to talk about that at length uh, because Paul talks about it. For 12 verses, he goes on talking about the second coming and the Antichrist, okay? Paul does, in fact, give many very clear indications of the nature and character of this dreadful time in human history. These events are also cataloged in such passages as Revelation 13 and 14, Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapters 9 through 12, as well as the Olivet Discourse of our Lord as described above. Understand that 1 and 2 Thessalonians are the only letters wherein Paul gives such extensive instruction about eschatological events surrounding the second coming of Christ, barring a few brief references in various other letters. Okay, So as I told you last week, this is the Pauline eschatology. This is where Paul gives his most extensive treatment of eschatology. Not only that, what's interesting is he gave them some eschatology in the first letter. He sent it up there, and they came back with a whole big, long list full of questions. So then he wrote his second letter to clarify more details on and, and fill up what was lacking in their understanding in regard to their questions. And so he gives extensive treatment to these things, and it's just amazing. It's amazing to see. You think about this. Paul is this guy that has mastered the Old Testament, 
right? He's a rabbi, man. He was studied under Gamaliel. I mean, not only that, he was an excelled rabbi. He was like, you know, a Pharisee. He says, a Pharisee of Pharisees I was, right? I mean, this guy knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, man. He could quote huge narratives for you, as these people could of that day and even of this day. But the, the point is, is simply this. Here's this master of the Old Testament with all of the New Testament understanding of his revelation in Jesus Christ explaining to us in great detail uh, what these eschatological events are like. Not only that, he's not giving us any apocalyptic revelations. He's explaining what the apocalyptic revelations mean. Okay? That's what's really cool here. So I'm excited about diving into that. And... Um, and I think that you will be thoroughly challenged by the things that Paul has to say. One more thing. I might add <clears throat> that much of this Pauline eschatology very closely parallels the teaching of our Lord in his Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The similarities are striking, but more than this, they follow very distinct patterns and themes. Even though our Lord's discourse follows a chronological timeline more than Paul's, nevertheless, they expose the same topics with much clarity and force, and we will see in the course of our study. Okay? Let me tell you what I'm saying. The Lord Jesus, listen, the, the disciples are sitting there with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they look over there as this gorgeous temple, unbelievable, beautiful temple, Herod's temple. And Jesus says, you see all those things down there? He says, not one stone will be left upon another. It's going to be thrown down. And, uh, and the disciples, they figure out, whoa, Jesus is telling us a prophecy, man. He's saying this temple is going to be torn down. What in, the, what in the world? God's temple is going to get torn down? So they say, well, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They ask him this question. Okay, Jesus goes on for two chapters in Matthew, right? One chapter in Mark, because the parables are omitted in Mark, but in Matthew the parables are included. Uh, and he answers their question, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And so he goes through in chronological fashion and he explains to them, it's going to happen like this. And he uses these terms that show us there's a chronology. He says things like then and at that time. So when you see, and immediately after that, he's telling them how these things are going to unfold, okay? It is very striking to see how the Pauline eschatology in First and Second Thessalonians overlaps perfectly with what Jesus has taught in the Olivet Discourse. When you grab that, okay, man, this stuff in Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 13 through 19 and 21 becomes very clear at least in, in um, general categories where that stuff fits in, okay? And so that's where some of the things on these charts are going to start making sense to you, okay? So I want to convince you, please, go read this preparatory reading. Read these passages. Know what they say. Get out your chart and just look at them. And whether you agree with me or not, at least look at them and consider what the text is saying and consider if that stuff really fits in to the chronology of history like, like uh, I seem to think it does and have written it on certain places on the, on the map. Okay? All right. Let's see.
All right, now, last thing. With all of this very wonderful instruction on the faith, hope, and love of the commended Thessalonian church, let us consider these letters as instruction from God as a very timely interlude in the life of our church, Heritage Christian Fellowship. What I'm saying is, family, is that the instructions that are given to this church fit very well with Heritage Christian Fellowship in the life of our church, in, in our journey of faith, okay? And they are very applicable to where we are in our current day and age and in the development, in the theological development of our church and in the understanding of who we are as a body of people. What does it mean that we're a church? And what instructions would the apostle have for us, okay? I'm telling you, I think that these letters speak right to us. And they encourage us to uh, do what they say. Are you with me? Let's not only be hearers of the word, which we are. And I, I want to commend you. I mean, of people hungry for the word of God. Man, you people are hungry. I tell you, I come in here, man, I'm ready to preach the word. But I see you on the edge of your chair and you're ready to receive it. You want to know what God says and you want to do what God says. And so here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that what's being said here is a very timely interlude in the life of our church. And I would like for you to consider it as the word of God coming to us, not just to them. If we are, in fact, a healthy church, as they were, and we are, in fact, living in a culture that's hostile to the gospel, okay, the instructions for them are very timely for us. Are you with me? Not only that. But we in our church have had very little instruction on eschatology. We have had some, and in various places there have been quite a bit. But, but corporately, we, we, we really haven't had much. It's been a long time, okay? And so I think that these things are going to stir the hope that we have in the soon come, coming of our Lord, okay? Not only that, I want you to be equipped with what the Bible says about this stuff because it's a tremendous springboard for preaching the gospel, you get people's ear when you tell them that Jesus is coming in flaming fire with mighty angels and he's going to deal out retribution to people that don't obey the gospel. Let me tell you, that'll get somebody's attention in a big hurry. Especially if you open up your Bible, Second Thessalonians, and see, see, it says that right there. Ever thought about that? How about you? Where do you stand in regard to the soon coming and conquering king? Which side of the fence are you on? You with me? Eschatology has profound ramifications in, in how we live. Are you with me? With that, let's pray. God, our Father, we are grateful that you have counted us worthy to hear these things. God, I pray that we would take them as seriously as you do. I pray, Lord, that the word would be the very bread of life for us. Lord, that we would feast on the word day by day. Lord, that we would delight in the word and meditate on the word, that we might be like that blessed man of Psalm 1 whose life prospers. Lord, who bears fruit in his season and whatsoever he does, he prospers. God, I pray that your word would be for each one of us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, that it would be our strong tower, our refuge, our shelter, God, that it would be for us the very food that causes us to live in eternal life. But Lord, we would desire your word 
above our necessary food. Oh Lord, may we be a people marked by love for you and love for your truth and love for your son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, may we be willing to tell others about the gospel and so snatch them from the fire. God, help us in these days, I pray. Encourage us in our faith. Strengthen us in our love. And God, strengthen our hope that we might be eagerly awaiting our soon coming King, even our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.